I don't know if you know, but um, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer is making his budget statement uh, to the Houses of Parliament, that is one of the very few times when the Speaker is allowed something to drink. And that is uh, another rare occasion when the Chancellor gets to pick. Uh, so the budget has been delivered at various occasions, fueled by whiskey, uh, gin, and I mean all of this explains some of the arithmetic. <laughs> uh, I wish to uh, reassure you that this is water. And if you're listening to this on the recording, they are a rebellious lot. <clears throat> so, um, this morning we're going to be, I think, ending the series on Moses. We're certainly going to be ending Moses. So, <laughs> so, so if your Bibles are uh, ready and you'd want to follow, you might want to just turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy 34. And I'm standing over here, so you have some chance of reading it if you, if you don't want to follow it. <clears throat> uh, yeah. He said confidently, but not actually knowing. Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Nope. Am I on? Thank you. Oh, and it buzzes. Oh, look, I've got the, I've got the little... Oh. There we go. It's that one. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where the grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. I'm still doing this wrong, aren't I? Yeah, what's that? Yay! Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. 
for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. <clears throat> okay, let's dive straight in. For God's people and in God's economy, God says when it's over. God says when it's done. God says when it's finished. God says when the mission is accomplished. Calling it is his sole prerogative. It is up to him and it is not up to us. God says when it's over. You turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, uh, starting at verse 7. This is Paul writing. It's very familiar. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'm going to read it again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And many of us know that this metaphor for the Christian life, that of a, a runner in a race, it's, it's dotted all over the New Testament. And during the course of his ministry, Paul wrote that he ran the race in such a way as to obtain the prize. He wrote that he disciplined himself, that he continually pressed forward towards the goal in Christ Jesus. So here in 2 Timothy, towards what he recognized as the approaching end of his ministry, he declared that he'd fought the fight, finished the race and kept the faith. Something really interesting happening here, because even at this point in time, by the very act of writing the letter in which he makes this declaration, he is still exhorting, encouraging and instructing a younger man. Now, some of us have grey hair. Some of us have no hair. Some of us have a little bit of hair that's going grey. And some of us shouldn't look so smug. <laughs> For us who are older in the faith, exhorting, encouraging and instructing younger men and women and doing it well is a perpetual responsibility. It is not something we retire from. Paul, after all he'd been through, the imprisoning, the shipwrecks, the whole lot, he was still doing it. Now, should God bring to us as a fellowship an influx of young men and young women, each carrying all the baggage the world has loaded on their shoulders, folks, will we be found ready to exhort, to encourage and to instruct them. Do we understand that that is not only Nigel's job? And for those who are younger in the faith, just in case you thought this was a sermon for wrinklies, okay, seeking out such exhortation and encouragement and instruction is your responsibility. 
You don't get to opt out of it if you are going to grow into the Christian you could be. Now, there is a gaping chasm, isn't there? (laughs) Okay. I'm uh, nearer 50 than I am 40 in years. I still seek out exhortation, encouragement and instruction. My first mentor is uh, past 80 now. He was on the phone just the other week. He's uh, long since retired, but he's still my mentor and he still phones me to encourage me. And I have young people who I have mentored who still phone me for encouragement and to whom I send emails and see and try and build up. Now, for those of us who would not consider us old or approaching the end of our ministry, and for those of us that would not consider ourselves young, at least not honestly, we all sit in that middle place. Okay? So we're into encouraging, we're into exhorting and instructing each other, aren't we? Now, Later on in the message, we'll get into some of the reasons why that could be hard. But that is the foundation of what I want to share today. See, you and I, we're not Moses. God has not told us to stand down. I I wanted at this point, I have a a note in my notes, in in blue, for those who are interested. Okay. I wanted to say, look, we're not entered in one event. We're entered in more than one event. If you've finished one, you can't say that you've finished. Unfortunately, scripturally, that's a bit shaky. What I will say is this, do not mistake the end of the lap for the end of the race. Okay? I I mean, I've seen it. I think you can see it on YouTube of, of somebody who's winning an extremely exalted race, whether it's the Olympics or the World Championships or something, and they stopped a lap early. Okay, that is not a mistake to make, but sometimes there's a danger that we do. Perhaps one way of looking at it is this. We, we are entered in the decathlon. The decathlon is lots of events which together constitute the event. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, speaking personally, I'm entered in the fatherhood race. Okay, I'm entered in the husband race. Um, I'm entered in a servant of God race. I meant it in all of these things, which all together are the race which takes me from where I am to being the Christian that God wants me to be, fulfilling the potential that Jesus Christ has seen in me. Hebrews 12, we see the race analogy again. And it is an endurance race. And let's be real, folks. Sometimes, well, we get tired. Okay, quick show of hands. Who gets tired? Okay, I'm assuming either you're asleep because you're tired and that's why you didn't raise your hand or you, you know, it's not just it. Listen, I'm an expert on tiredness. Okay, I can do weary. All right. Heart failure does that to a guy because the amount of effort involved in anything becomes epic. We all have a thing called recovery time. When we exert ourselves, the recovery time is how long it takes our heart to get back to its normal and slow rhythm. And if you get heart failure, that's the first thing that goes. You don't really recover at all. I've stood at the bottom of the stairs in my home and I've looked up 
because I'd forgotten something. It might have been a book or something. Knowing full well that I could not get to the top of those stairs without stopping halfway and sitting on a step and getting my breath back. And knowing full well that I'd probably have to do the same on the way down. And that the action of getting a book or something from the bedroom was going to take me 45 minutes. And then I'd probably have to have a sleep. Okay, no recovery time. My favourite one is, is the kettle. I used to, Belinda used to go off to work, leave me sitting in an armchair. And I'd sit there and go, ooh, just fancy a cup of tea. Okay, so I'd get up and I'd fill the kettle. I'd go back and sit in my chair and I would fall asleep for two hours. And I'd wake up and I'd think, ooh, I could just go a cup of tea. <laughs> and I can tell you that a whole day went with me doing that and never once getting a drop of tea. <laughs> Belinda ended up leaving me a thermos. Okay. Fatigue, tiredness. A, di- uh, a friend of ours from our, our last church, he said, oh, can I come and see you while you're, you're not well at home or while you're recovering? Oh, it'd be lovely to see you. Thank you. That'd be really nice. Later that day, he rang up. I've been held up. I'm awfully sorry. Would you mind coming to see me? Well, it can be quite lonely, you know, when you're stuck at home during the day and you can't do anything. You've got nothing. So I said, yeah, okay. And I got in the car. I drove to his house. Only 10 minutes. And we had a nice cup of tea and a chat. And I got in the car and I drove back. And I was in bed for two days recovering. I know tiredness. I know what it's like. Some of you know I've got a walking machine. (laughs) Torture machine. (laughs) And... uh, When I first got it, I used to look at it, and it used to look at me. (laughs) And it used to go, nah. (laughs) I simply haven't got the reserves to invest in you. Push off. (laughs) Now, when I did start walking on it, guys, I could manage five, ten minutes. And then I would have to sit on a chair for half an hour going, (gasps) I understand tiredness. I know what it's like. On a couple of occasions, I've been halfway to somewhere and it's dawned on me with approaching horror that I wasn't going to make it back. I've been on walks and got a taxi home. I understand what it's like to be tired. If you're following in your Bibles, would you have a look at Isaiah 40? and starting at verse 28. <coughs> Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not go tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those whose hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You can read this passage as a bit of a telling off. Okay, a metaphorical figure in the chest. Look, don't you know? Haven't you got it yet? But I don't believe that is the heart there. It reminds us of the longevity and the centrality and the power of God. We can't 
possibly begin to understand him and yet he is there for us. We find the reassurance that we can call on him and keep calling on him that he never tires. He never tires from hearing from us. We can approach him again and again about the same thing without embarrassment. When we get tired, even dog tired, God understands. He doesn't condemn us for being tired. Instead, we find sympathy. It's absolutely normal for anyone of any age. Even youths grow tired and weary. It points out that getting tired is not something to be ashamed of. Okay, we don't have to be superhuman Christians. Sometimes we're just tired. And it's not a thing to be ashamed of. But if we are tired, if our hope, which I define as our confidence about what will happen in the future, is consciously placed in the Lord, we will rise on wings like eagles. We will be upheld by the living God. The wearying effort will be eased. And he will replace our weakness and our weariness with stamina. Now, when I was researching, I found out some stuff about eagles I didn't know. It was quite difficult because the, the, a lot of the stuff that you can read is about American eagles. And, of course, this writer didn't know anything about American eagles. It was the eagles that you find in the Middle East. They fly at 30 miles an hour level flight. Did you know that? An eagle actually goes from A to B faster than the traffic in Manchester. <laughs> They're fast. But to help them soar, they use thermals, rising currents of warm air, what Americans call updrafts. Whereas that's for you. <laughs> and soaring is accomplished with relatively little effort. Not no effort, relatively little effort. Long-distance flight is accomplished by climbing high in a thermal and gliding downwards to catch the next one. And the process is repeated. And the thermals, of course, are a picture of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the eagles are us. And David's a bald eagle. Eagles don't just catch one thermal. They soar from one to another. Just as we are instructed to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Our relationship with the Holy Spirit isn't a, a, a greeting and then we view him across the room. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God says. And the eagles, of which the writer would have been familiar they didn't have to toil to gain height at the outset because they lived in high places. What do I mean by that? Well, because they live at altitude and near the thermals, they don't have to beat their way up to get height to catch them. They drop down and the thermal is under their wings. If we walk close to God and start each day with him, then we live in the high place. 
and catching the thermal is easier because we're near where it is. And I read the eagles gain in experience. They have a range and they know where the best thermals are in the, their range. But eagles are, are often migratory. And in fact, they're catching thermals for thousands of miles sometimes when they're on long journeys. We're instructed to press into God, to know him better. And if we do that, then we will gain in our experience and know how to catch the thermals. Now, this uh, scripture has come up several times in our meetings. Um, I haven't been keeping count, but I think three or four. Any advance on four? Okay, we'll make three or four the working total. And in the past six months or so, and, and recently, I found myself singing it at a prayer meeting. Now, I don't know if any of you spotted Belinda's reaction when I sang it. I don't know if, if, if many of you did. There was a, you know... Uh, now, you might have put that down to my singing. Uh, you might have put it down to the volume at which I was singing. <laughs> okay. But you see, she remembered when I was too sick and too tired to sing. She remembered when I did not have the breath to sustain a note, uh, when I was just too weary. And she was thanking God for lifting us from some of our darkest days. She could see that in the very act of singing that passage, I was soaring on wings like eagles. She could see that I was being sustained by God. And I, I praise God for that. I'm not, uh, I'm not signed off by the doctor yet, but believe me, folks, I am so much better than I was in my darkest days. And for that, I praise God. And I thank you for your faithful prayer. Okay. Back to the passage, Numbers 20. We've read that Moses wasn't permitted to enter the promised land. And this is where the reason can be found. I'll, uh, I'll read it through. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, Oh, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff... And you and your brother, I should point out here that the staff aren't a group of people, it's a piece of wood. Take, take the staff and you and your brother, Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he'd commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, 
Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his stuff. And water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarrelled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. Uh, Just as an aside, really, we love the fact, don't we, that God is a promise-keeping God, that he keeps his promises, that we can rely on them utterly. But bear in mind, I think, that some of them, well, they're just not so comfortable. Let's look at the position Moses was in. He just suffered the loss of his sister. She'd been a significant person in his life. Um, It was her, really, that suggested to uh, Pharaoh's daughter that, um, in fact, his biological mother look after him. It was her who watched over him when he was in the the, uh, rushes basket. And, uh, frankly, in the middle of their sojourn in the desert there'd been a big falling out and she'd disgraced herself but she got herself sorted out uh, in one of the translations it says she was quote no longer a seditious whisperer he'd had a bereavement now there was no water uh Listen, that's a reasonable issue. You've got, you know, people and livestock, especially so many, and there's no water. That is a problem. It is a legitimate issue to raise with a leader. But those who were affected by it, well, they just went off on one. They were massively disrespectful to Moses. They were incredibly selective in their memory. I mean, oh, you know, Egypt, wonderful, marvellous, pomegranates, cheese on toast. You know, we had it all and here we are. And we're, oh, it's the end of the... And hang on, they were slaves in Egypt. They went on what we in our family term, a complete decline. Now, Belinda and I have spoken about this carefully because... The person in our family most liable to a complete decline is our daughter. And we didn't want to get her into too much trouble. Um, So we agreed the example that I would use in this sermon. And of course, uh, I'm going to use another one. (laughs) It starts off with a spot. It's even worse if you say, is that a spot, darling? Okay, and it goes from spot to hideous disfigurement. I'll never get a job looking like this. I won't be able to finish my studies. I'll die alone and disfigured in a dark room. Hang on, it's a spot. Just get some perspective. And the atmosphere was tetchy and quarrelsome and argumentative. Let me tell you, if you examine any failing organization, a business, a church, a government, and I just want to be clear on this, I'm not describing our church here, you'll find all of these issues. You'll find them all there. And at least one person in the back is grinning at me because he's in the middle of it and he knows just what I mean. 
you will find a lack of sympathy or empathy for the poor guy whose job it is to manage or run it. You'll find that the trouble probably started over something legitimate. In business, notoriously, it used to be company cars or the staff canteen. You'll find somebody or a group pushing the issue. You'll find individuals demonstrating conduct that is unpleasant, disrespectful, or just plain mean. You'll find the truth being misunderstood. You'll find inaccurate institutional memory. And what I mean by that is that most people think that this started like that. And actually, if you go back and you look into it, it's not true. In my role as a consultant, I've gone into businesses and I found the entire management structure were completely misinformed about how they got into the position they're in and that they needed to call a consultant in to sort it out. A consultant, you know, is someone who borrows your watch to tell you the time. <laughs> Careful, David, there's two of us in the room. You'll find that the truth is misunderstood and you will find at worst barefaced lies. And the biggest difficulty in sorting it out will be the suspicious, quarrelsome atmosphere that becomes all-pervading. Now, as Christians, we are called in our place of work to be countercultural in our school, in our college. That is to say, we are called to be sympathetic, to be reasonable, respectful, truthful and accurate. And we are called to refuse to involve ourselves in quarrels and intrigues. And that latter one, I know from experience how hard that can be. And in our place of worship, well, my assumption is that we are all that way already. So back to Moses. The people had a legitimate issue, but their behavior was illegitimate. Moses knew the Lord face to face. And by the way, we knew he had a temper on him. If you want to uh, sort of get some idea on that, get a couple of you know, decent-sized pieces of granite and try and break them by hurling them to the ground, because he succeeded. But he bit his tongue and he sought the Lord. And he was given clear, unequivocal instructions as what to do so that the grace of God could be demonstrated to these difficult people. How on earth could Moses have possibly concluded that he knew better? He'd heard from God. This was not an issue of um, guidance. I got my guidance wrong. He'd heard from God. It was clear. It was unequivocal. God had told him face to face and he thought he knew better. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. Pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I have some other commentators on that. Nigel. Pride is the strongest influence propelling us to sin. Or try this one. 
If sin is a house, you will find its foundation is built on pride. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18. I just love this in the message version. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Moses had lost his sense of who God was. He had diminished sense of who God was and he had increased sense of who Moses was. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth and his understanding no one can fathom. He heard the word of God clearly, spoken to him face to face and presumed to have a better idea. Who was Moses? And actually, who are we? Uh, but servants of the living God. We are the servants and God is our master. And thirdly, Moses had lost sight of his responsibilities towards the people, who they were. Their well-being and their welfare was his first responsibility. And his leadership of them was his service to them. Just as in the church, a particular position of authority is a particular position of service. But let me also just make this clear. If you have no particular position of authority, you still have a particular position of service. In the church today, we start by acknowledging, don't we, that God is Lord. Secondly, that we are his servants and he is our master. And thirdly, that we have a responsibility to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and the wider community in which we live. Now, a bit of an aside. I'm just going to take you up a cul-de-sac before we reverse and go back into the sermon. Okay. Pride... Uh, <coughs> Pride can de take things which are actually good and valuable and, and devalue them. Uh, the best example I, I've come across is courage. Okay, courage is, well, it's godly. How often do you see it in the word of God? You know, be strong and of good courage, fear not. You, you see all of that. It's godly. Courage plus pride equals recklessness. Now, courageous people, they will save you. Reckless people, well, they're dangerous. They're a danger to themselves and to others. So the consequences of Moses' pride and his consequent disobedience were that he did not enter into the promised land with the community that he led. If we look for it, though, there was grace. There was grace at work. Because firstly, in the face of Moses' sin and in the sin of the people, God still brought forth water. And the people drank. God saved them. God saved them. I have a little note in my margin that says living water. Okay? God has brought us living water. Secondly, God graciously showed him the land. God didn't have to show him, didn't have to see anything, but God showed him the land. So he could see that he'd reached his journey's end. This wasn't cruelty, this was to give the man peace. That it was done, that he'd got there. 
that his race had been run, he'd fought the good fight. And the other thing, uh, perhaps is, is more, uh, perhaps a bit more of a stretch, but I think also this is graciousness. God sustained Moses to 120 years old. His eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. And it, <clears throat> if you go back into the translations, which I, I've got to admit I rarely do, the, 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 the use of the words in this scripture actually are about Moses had enough vigor to bear children. He was, he was, he was a young man. Uh, in every other regard than his years. Now, also, what does the Bible say? It says, my strength, the strength of God, is made perfect in your weakness. For us to really understand and know the strength of God, we have to recognize our own, our own weakness. Okay, we can't do it by ourselves. He understands that we get tired. Getting tired is nothing to be ashamed of. And his resources are available for us when we do. Quick disclaimer. When I say getting tired, I mean getting tired involved in activities that are legitimate. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you stayed up all night playing video games and you staggered into church this morning, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you're excluded from this sermon entirely on that issue. <laughs> Okay, I've been, I've been really surprised uh, over the years how many people uh, stagger into church on a Sunday morning just chattered because they've been out doing stuff on Saturday night. They've not planned uh, in some rest and they come in and they're not rested. And uh, God, God is gracious and God loves us but uh, you're going to have to beat your wings hard to get to altitude before you can be lifted, okay, by the, the Holy Spirit. Okay, the story goes that uh, Muhammad Ali, the boxer, um, I just want to do a quick age check. Does anyone know who Muhammad Ali is? Yeah, okay. He was on a plane and he refused to fasten his seatbelt. And the stewardess came up to him and asked him, said, uh, would you fasten your seatbelt, please, Mr. He said, uh, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she put her hands on her hips and looked down at him and said, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> Look, I'm prepared to admit that sometimes I get tired and weary and sometimes I stumble and fall. Uh, now, whether we're, we're tired now or we're not tired at the moment, you know, we're relatively unstressed, all is well. Whether we're engaged in a struggle for altitude or, or we're already flying high, we all need the Holy Spirit to sustain us. And we all need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And in order to do that, sometimes as we've sung this morning, we have to pour contempt on all our pride. Yeah? I mean, who's heard the, the expression, man up? Yeah? Yeah? yeah. Okay, if you're going to man up, uh, someone says, oh, you're not looking, you're looking a bit peaky. I'm absolutely fine. You know, I'm a large and strapping person. 
That's, that's, that's manning up. That's not, not, not honesty. Okay, blokes, we're most guilty at this when, when we're ill. And our wife says, I think you should get to bed. Or I think you should ring the doctor. No, 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 I'm fine, I'll be okay, you know. <laughs> Let me be a lesson to you, because the one time I should have, I really was ill. Um, poor contempt on all our pride. Okay. It's, it's, it's okay to admit sometimes things are tough. It's all right to admit that you're tired. It's, it, it's okay, we can be honest in that way with each other and with God. And we need to go to the Holy Spirit to be constantly filled. Okay. Now I've, uh, I've got written in my notes here, time of ministry question mark. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to, to, to say is, look, if that's you, and you want to be prayed for, because, well, yeah, look, it's just a bit hard going at the moment, and I'm tired, then we should be, we should be praying for you. If that's you, and actually, no, I'm okay this morning. You know, I'm, I, everything's all right. The Christmas cards are done. The turkey's stuffed. We, I'm, I'm completely on top of everything. But I'd love to rise on that thermal. Then we should be, we should be praying for that too, shouldn't we? Okay, so uh, I'm going to hand over to Nigel and David. And I'm going to let them take it from here.